Hello, Knit a Spell fans, and welcome to part two of our interview with Madame Pamita about her newest book, Baba Yaga's Book of Witchcraft. In this episode, we also talk about her magical making, how it's been used throughout history and through today, the current state of Ukraine, and even how Madame Pamita can trace her Ukrainian heritage to the Celts. Perhaps you remember the episode that we did on fishermen at sweaters. I think you'll find the correlations between the two in this episode very interesting. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy this episode. Light from Lantern presents Knit a Spell. I'm magical maker, Katie Rempe. And I'm the maker of magic, James Devine. Join us as we stitch together the symbiotic relationship between crafting and the craft. And we're back. So, Pamita, I'm really excited to hear about what were some of your favorite uh, crafts that made it into Baba Yaga's Book of Witchcraft? Well, there are so many cool Slavic traditions, Ukrainian traditions that um, were ma- are magical and ancient and really pagan that pre, you know, pre-existed. But when I started this book, I had to, I started out with like a 300,000 word document of notes for things that I could put in the book, but I had to, obviously I had to make it smaller. That's a crazy amount of, of words. It went from 300,000 words to 100,000 words, and it's still a pretty substantial book. So that 100,000 words, I had to say, what would it be that a solitary witch living out in the woods would do, right? That really became my criteria. So she sort of mentions a few holiday things and sort of like sidebars. She'll talk about some holiday things, but we don't get a real in-depth look at like community events or life, um, life event um, magic. We talk about it a little bit. We touch on it, but we don't go too deeply into it because she's not there being a midwife or doing a funeral or, um, you know, going to being in a wedding or going to a wedding. So these sorts of practices, which are very, very rich are not going to show up. So what is she doing? Well, she's doing things that solitary people do. She's doing crafts. She's making things. And one of the things that I find is a real hallmark of Ukrainian magic is that there's everything in the old Slavic home was not useful or beautiful or magical, but it was useful and beautiful and magical, Mm. all three of those things. So the example I give in the book is to say, like, if you had a spoon that you were using to serve your food, you would decorate that spoon with symbols and uh, shapes along it. But those shapes and symbols would be for prosperity and abundance and health. So that when you serve somebody with that spoon, you were also encoding that health and, and prosperity and abundance into the meal that you were serving. And this was true with every aspect from clothing that people wore to the decorations in the house, to the implements that they made, even things like very utilitarian things like a loom, for example, looms were carved with these symbols of these uh, protective symbols of rosettes and things like that. So that when you were weaving, you were also adding protection into your work. An additional thing and talking about weaving in particular, this is something that I really had this moment back in February when the war started. I was 
had done the research on weaving and in, in Ukrainian traditional weaving, women sing, it's women's work to weave and women would sing as they were weaving. They would sing old pagan songs that were encoding blessings into that um, cloth. So if it was, let's say you knew you were weaving this cloth to make a wedding dress, you'd sing wedding songs, you know, about this and that as you encoded that into the work that you were doing. The songs themselves are incantations set to music. Knowing that and looking at this and knowing that, um, you know, this tradition of weaving cloth, which was once done in every home, now with modern technology, less so done, more done as like a thing, a special thing, right? But I was watching a video in February, back in February, of um, mothers and children weaving camouflage nets for the soldiers in Ukraine. So they're taking a netting and they're adding strips of fabric. What are they doing? They're singing as they do it. They're singing encoding protection into this weaving that they're doing. And I just started crying. I was like, oh my gosh, this tradition of doing that has, has been carried on. Even in modern day times when they're not really weaving and sitting at a loom, they're doing this when they're weaving the nets to protect the soldiers. And of course, all my emotions about that whole thing <laughs> came up oh, too. Sure. But, but to see that was like, it was magical. And it was something that was so moving to me to see that magic still existing mm -hmm. and to see it being added to a modern context for what's needed right now. Sadly, as the war has gone on, it's not top of the news as, as it should be, but it's still this amazing resistance that Ukraine has put up against the, you know, the horrible terrorism and invasion that Russia has incurred upon a sovereign nation of Ukraine. And we saw these amazing acts of magical resistance, like with the putting the seeds of, of sunflowers in soldiers' pockets or of old women just standing there and cursing and spitting. And I would just imagine these Russian soldiers would be like regular guys who were just like, what the hell? And like, they see this babushka of, of a lady that would look just like their own grandma saying these things. And they're like, probably like, what the hell am I doing here on their own mind? Right. Some are, some are real indoctrinated, you know, it's sure. like, we have, we have a whole mix of, you know, people who are like, they don't know what the hell they're doing. And then we have some that are super indoctrinated and really just committing atrocities. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, I think, you know, we can look at Nazi Germany and what happened in Nazi Germany. There were some Germans that were just like, I don't want to cause any, you know, problems. So I'm just going to lay low. They weren't yeah. doing anything to, to resist, but they weren't actively involved. And then there were some people who were super gung ho. So yeah. I think you find that, you know, and everything. So it's not like these poor, innocent Russian soldiers. Right, There's lots of, of atrocities that are being committed by them, yeah. but they're, they're, but they're being brainwashed by their government. Right. And it's really, yeah. it's really gross. Yeah. The, no, the point though, is that I, we can, we saw these amazing acts of magic yeah. from the regular people of Ukraine, even if it is under the thin veneer of Orthodox Christianity. Yeah. It's really funny. Cause as I was doing the research, I was finding incantations and the incantations for different spells would be like, I call in the sun, I call in the moon, I call in the 77 sister stars to do this work. Da, 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 da. Oh, and I also call in Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. 
just it's round like a, it all out. It's just yeah. tacked on at the end because we have to. And so I'm just like, oh, I'll just take that part out. And then I've got an incantation that'll work for me. Right. So this idea that there's this, there's, there's so much and, um, and just so much like rich old stuff that still has lived and existed even with this oppression of Christianity and the oppression of Soviet Union and you know countries coming in and taking over that land which is so fertile and and valuable there's an interesting thing too that as I was doing my research so the geography of Ukraine is mostly farm lands with very rich soil it's got 30 percent of the black soil in the on the earth which is the richest most fertile soil is in Ukraine. Wow. So it was called at one time the breadbasket of Europe because it was oh, supplying right. all of this food and still does to this day, which is why there's another atrocity going on, which is the forced famine that's happening because they're supplying food and grain to Africa and other countries in Europe. And so if Russians come in and wipe out those crops or steal those crops or destroy those crops, it's creating a famine and not just in Ukraine, but in another country as well. It's so gross. It's just disgusting. It's disgusting that that's happening. So this, and, and it's really uh, very thought out by Russia because the Russian propaganda minister is saying, oh, if we create this famine, I mean, they know what they're doing. If we create this famine, all the other countries will have to do what we say so that we will, it's Mm -hmm. like, they're like the biggest bully mafia people shaking down people. It's it's, it's insane. So anyway, the point of this is, is that there's this very valuable farmland. And then we have these mountains, the Carpathian mountains, which is at the foot of those mountains is where my family's from. Carpathian culture, Western, it's the Western chain. So Carpathian mountains go down into Romania. And I think, I don't know how far they go down, but they're in Ukraine and they're in a bunch of countries. This culture is sheep herder culture mountain you can't really grow anything there but you can take sheep up there and that culture was because that land wasn't valuable has remained virtually untouched in many many ways so they were still things like churches and crosses and things even when soviet the soviet union was outlawing all of that the great thing is all of the pagan practices still exist so the sheep farmers in the Hutzel people up in the mountains, this is an ethnic group up in the mountains, they still take their sheep up to the highlands for the summertime to feed on the gray, the grass up there, and then they bring them down for the wintertime. They still do the, the ritual of putting their sheep, making the sheep run through a little fire. It's like embers with a little fire, not, you know, not going to catch the sheep on fire, but um, they make them run through it to cleanse and bless them. That ain't a Christian thing. That is a pagan thing. <laughs> so to these kind of acts, like where they, and they make the fire by rubbing the sticks together, which is living fire. So this is a, a way of like having that continuity. They're the ones that were still keeping the only ones in Ukraine, really, that were still keeping the act of making the pesanki, the decorated eggs alive when people in Ukraine, it was only uh, people out in the boonies, the hillbillies, the Ukrainian hillbillies, and the diaspora Ukrainians who had gone to other countries where they could practice freely were the only ones in the 20th century, you know, for the majority of the 20th century who were still able to do that. So we have this very interesting, you know, kind of little frozen thing where there's all the stuff that still never has total continuity because they didn't get up there to uh, suppress them as much. 
Your book covers, as you said, many crafts, as you reflected for solo practitioners or just people who do one-on-one -on -one crafts, which I mean, crafting quite often is kind of a solo thing anyway. I know knitting is for sure. I don't actually yeah. even like knitting around other people. I'm counting. Um, I'm counting. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. So embroidery, spinning, weaving, cooking, doll making, just a handful of crafts that were discussed. Did any particularly resonate with you afterwards? Oh, well, like embroidery, when I was a kid, my mom taught me to embroider but I was really you know wiggly kid so I didn't want to sit there and embroider I wanted to run around and climb a tree you know yep. but uh, embroidery has come back to me as something that is very helpful and very um, helpful for calming anxiety so when the war started happening I really started embroidering all kinds of things because I wanted to really protect those people and being at a distance I was doing so many things but still had all this anxiety. And so that was very helpful. Working with Pesanki, Jim has done Pesanki, which are the decorated Easter eggs, decorated eggs. They predate Easter. They predate Jesus. So they predate Easter for sure. And these decorated eggs, um, Jim has done it when he was a kid. And I did a little bit when I was a kid, but more so as an adult, I learned how to spin. Jim's partner, Michael taught me how to spin over zoom because I was like, okay, I have to learn how to spin because I'm talking about spinning and I don't know what the hell I'm doing and directions are hard. <laughs> Show me oh. and tell me what I'm doing wrong. So I mentioned Cloven, sorry, I mentioned Cloven in the book and, and uh, how he helped me with learning how to spin. It was drop spindle, right? Yeah, drop spindle, yeah. Oof. Drop oh, spindle. Yeah, that's tough. So, and then embroidery, you know, I just use Aida cloth because it's easy. You know, I got old eyes. I have to wear specs, you know, so I need to have those helpers. But there's some gorgeous, amazing crafters and Ukrainian embroiderers who are doing it the old school way, which is with plain old linen. And they're just mm. counting the counted cross stitch. They're counting those threads, which I can't even see those threads. So, you know, this is like, it's still the old ways being done. I collect old Vishivanki which Ooh. are, you can still find Vishivanki that are um, from the 19, early 19, 20th century. And they're all embroidered on hemp or linen, sometimes cotton, but mostly hemp or linen. And they're all counted cross-stitch where they're counting those threads and they are all impeccably perfect. I, I mean, and intricate and beautiful. So cross-stitch, I gotta say, because so, we get to talk about all this technical stuff here, cross-stitch really didn't come into vogue until the 1850s in Ukraine. It was a European thing. So the tradition of cross-stitch isn't actually a very old tr tradition. It just became very popular, very trendy and stuck. So those cross-stitch embroidered things are actually, you know, no more than 150, 170 years old, even, you know, if you look at the first ones. But the history of embroidery and different stitches of embroidery um, go back way, 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 thousands and thousands of years. And we can see, for example, Scythian gold plates where we can see the people depicted on it and the people are wearing certain clothes and the clothes are embroidered. So even though we don't have the extant piece of cloth that was embroidered, we know people were embroidering their clothing for thousands of years that this has been going on in this area. Scythian people existed on the steppes in the um, lower western part of Ukraine. So we, we know there's this continuity of doing this and the designs that were done um, were often woven or sometimes the cloth was woven with a design or embroidered with a design and the designs had symbolic meaning. So this was like a fertility 
one, or this was for family, or this is for um, uh, prosperity. This is for health. This is for protection from evil. The places that the, the parts of the clothing that are embroidered are significant. So we find that um, the embroidered Vishivanki have um, embroidery along the wrist, along the neckline and along the hem at the bottom to keep from evil from getting on inside your clothes and getting to you. There's embroidery on the front of the men's chest clothing. And oftentimes it's floral. It's very uh, beautiful. And what we in our modern American culture would say feminine looking, but it was plants and beauty, you know? And so this um, beautiful floral embroidery on uh, the beautiful chest of the men's clothing, along the women's clothing, it was along the sleeves of the clothing. So you would have that because you would cover the chest with like a vest. So you wouldn't see mm. if any embroidery there. So. Um, there's some gorgeous examples of Vishivanki in the Ukrainian Museum in New York City. And uh, my friend Buchanan B and I went there when I was in New York City and we were just like dying at how gorgeous. And they're like embroidered, like, like the whole thing is embroidered. It's unbelievable. And if you are an embroiderer or a, a crafter, you look at it and you're like, oh the hours. my God, <laughs> the out, thousands of hours. It's like a couture a couture thing you would pay five thousand dollars for from dior right you know mm, or more 25 yeah <laughs> probably exactly and you can still get these beautiful antique vishivanki that have these gorgeous embroideries so i'm always looking for kind of the weird ones that i haven't seen before you can find lots with like roses and lots with like mm. fruits and things like that I'm looking for the ones that aren't cross-stitched. I'm looking for the ones that are weird in some way because there's some amazing ones. I mean, beautiful and gorgeous, amazing ones out there still. It really reminds me of, we did an episode on fisherman knit sweaters and how, you know, in Ireland, each family, each clan would have a certain, you know, like, oh, these stitches put together in this way means you're part of our house. And so if you're washed away and while you're working, getting the fish to feed everyone, we'll, we'll know who you were because maybe we don't find you right away. But the wool will keep up because, you know, it, it won't light on fire and yeah. it's water resistant and it's more magical than your flesh suit. So we'll, <laughs> we'll bring it back. So it's been very interesting to see that this is such a a universal idea, again, even if it's applied in a different way. Yeah. Well, yeah. there's a connection there, you know, because Celts came from Central and Eastern Europe and they traveled over. So we find a lot of like Druidic practices showing up in ancient um, Slavic practices, hmm. oak tree grove worship and things like that, because they all have the common root of the Celts being there at the same time. The part of the country that my families from is called Halichna. Halichna is Galicia in English. Galicia is Gaul. Gaul means Celt, right? The Gauls are the <laughs> oh. <laughs> But there's also another thing that you mentioned, which we find with the Ukrainian embroidery. Each village had its own style. Each yeah. region had its own style. So if I saw you with white on white embroidery, I know you're from the Northeast, whatever province you're from. Mm. In this style with lots of different colors. I know you're like Hutzel because you're up there and you have yellow and orange in yours. Or if you're doing red, white, and black, you're from Kiev area, if you're doing this. So there were these styles that were identifying. So someone would look at you with your clothing on, they would A, know your wealth because of the things that you're wearing. How, where was your social standing? Did you have lots of embroidery? What kind of cloth was it on? How much embroidery was there? Did you have a lot of time to embroider? How good of an embroiderer are you? But we'd also see 
uh, you, where you're from and what group you belong to, mm. what village you belong to and what region you belong to by the style of embroidery, which there are people now that are really super knowledgeable about this and groups. I look at these groups on um, uh, uh, Facebook and so on that are about weaving and embroidery, Ukrainian weaving, embroidery and all of this. And they're like, oh yes, this is from Podilia and this one is from blah, blah, blah. And it's circa this time. I mean, they know exactly where it's from by the style. They can tell where that piece was made. And then sometimes they're like, (laughs) get snotty. Like they've got that Vishivanka with the wrong skirt. That skirt's from (laughs) that region. And that Vishivanka's from that region. (laughs) They'd never have access to this color. Why is this color on there? They don't have flowers in yellow. So, but it's like fascinating. That whole thing that you're telling me, I just love it. I love that, that the Irish, the Aaron sweaters are, Mm -hmm. are, have that beautiful um, story where the knit, the stitch tells the, identifies the group. What a cool mm-hmm. thing. There's a variation on it everywhere. It's a nice thing to reflect back on if you're looking for your own history, right? Yeah. What, what yeah, crafting exactly. was in your past. Exactly. You know, mm. one of the things about the weaving that as I was doing the book too, I really, every home had a loom and winter time when it was, you weren't doing the farm work, you weren't out in the fields was the time of doing weaving and the time of doing your embroidery and all of these indoor things that you'd have to stay inside for when it was cold outside. So the weaving, you would think this is amazing. They still have women that have reenacted this and they film it. They would show them from beating the flax, you know, combing mm. out the fibers, spinning the fibers, and then weaving the cloth on the loom. And there are spells that go along with this where they would have a special spell. If you, the whole village, all the women in the village would get together and they would take something from flax to finished Rushnik, which is the um the towel the special they call it a towel it's like a a special cloth that they use for ceremonial purposes so this special embroidered cloth you would take it from beginning to end in 24 hours and that cloth would be magical that you could then go and then uh you know put this at the at the path across the pathway to your village to keep disease out of your village or you could do this for someone who was going off into a battle and make a shirt for them in one day to protect them in battle what does this sound like oh you have to spin the straw into gold in one day right this is magic that's done with weaving and particularly this this idea that they would say they would have all these prescriptions around it where they would say you cannot you have to do this work you have to do it within before the sun goes down or whatever you know the time frame was and you cannot speak while you do it or you have to you know you you have to keep it hidden from the rest of the community or whatever there were all these rules and regulations about this very magical item that you were crafting and making and it had to do with weaving so very cool but I just thought what blew my mind was the fact that Every curtain, every piece of cloth, every embroidery thread, every bed uh, blanket, every mm-hmm. every sheet, every piece of clothing that you wore, all had to be made in the home from the flax or the wool that you had got grew yourself. You know, flax hemp, flax and hemp are the main fabrics, and then wool if you're up in the north, you know, up in the highlands. So yeah. I think about this often as someone who used to work in the fashion industry. We have access to everything, anything at every point, including free. You could just grab it off the street, that there's no value to it anymore. 
And I think that's why, you know, the hand-making movement is kind of coming back along with just being more mindful about our choices in general, because don't you care a little bit more about the sweater you made yourself than like, even if it was like $200 worth of material and you had to make it, make it for two years, let's say, but you could go to Target if you want or wherever and buy something for 20 bucks. But do you care about it? Like, oh, it gets a hole the next week and you're like, oh, it's $2, whatever. But yeah. if your sweater gets a hole, you probably are going to mend it. <laughs> you yeah. probably are going to take you, extra care going around the corners. Like, and you know how. Ah. I think that that's too. also part of it is I have no idea how it was made. One of my favorite things with knitting is people that are taking going to thrift stores and finding old sweaters and then taking them the yarn apart and knitting and creating something new you can get beautiful wool that way for dirt cheap because you're buying that thing for six dollars and it's got enough yarn for a sweater right <laughs> clearly a yeah <laughs> yeah and a lot of times you can get things like cashmere really nice alpacas like people just don't know what it is yeah. So you can certainly benefit from it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or it's an ugly style that, you know, nobody likes and you can make it in something beautiful. Yeah. Exactly. I love that. Yeah. Pam, when you were writing the book, was there any subject or chapters or content that you wrote about that you had to fight to keep in? No. no. Oh, she no. got to tell her story. Huh? Yeah. You know what happened? Um, so Alicia Gallo is my uh, oh. editor. She's the best. I just love her so much. I, I give her full credit because she was the one when I brought the first draft to her, she's like, I, I'm really kind of, you need to really delineate like the story, Baba Yaga's voice and your voice, because it's like your voice and Baba Yaga's voice. I don't know if you're channeling Baba Yaga or what's mm. happening, but you need to make those really three separate distinct things and not this vague kind of it's moving from Baba Yaga into my voice. You know, mm. she said, you need to be more of a presence in the book. Like it was more like Baba Yaga was saying everything and her with her guidance, it really shaped out that book so much, but there was nothing in there that she said, don't yeah, take that out. In fact, in fact, they're so indulgent. Oh my God, Llewellyn is so good to me. I, I think I, I pitched it as a 60,000 word book and it ended up being a hundred thousand words. And they were like, it's fine. So they, didn't, they didn't make me cut anything, which is so great. Their belief and Alicia's belief in this book has been nothing but a hundred percent. She's like, I know it's going to do amazing. So she has believed in it from day one and she's just the best. So I give her full credit for helping, really helping that vision uh, when you're in it, you kind of mm. can't see. And so somebody outside of you that goes, Hey, you need to do, this is how this is going to be. And when I did that, it really made the book from like an okay book into a, a book I'm super proud of. What's really cool about this is it's almost like it is a little bit like the fool's journey in a way with the protagonist in the fairy tale. Incredible the way it's done. I took for that fairy tale, I took um, the framework of a story, a real famous story called Rosalisa the Fair. That was sort of my loose framework, which is a little girl. She goes, her, she, her mother dies she gets a magic doll. The stepmother, evil stepmother sends her to Baba Yaga. She's supposed to steal fire from Baba Yaga and then come back. And then the, the, the fire that she brings back burns up the stepmother and the evil stepsisters, right? 
So I took out loose framework, but I added in elements from other stories that feature Baba Yaga because I needed to have a longer story for one. And there were parts of it that I wanted to get in that weren't included in the original story, like meeting the Rusalki and meeting the forest, um, the Lisovuk, the forest man, and these things that are important for understanding Slavic magic and Slavic culture and what would be part of Baba Yaga's world. So it takes you a little while to finally get to Baba Yaga. It's not until like chapter seven or eight or I don't know, somewhere well into it that you actually meet her, but you have to get immersed in the world and understand who's around her to really understand her. And that's really what's happening with that story. But it goes from little girl to initiated witch who's now passing down the information like someone did to her, like Baba Yaga did to her. And so it is a complete cycle where it shows you how to grow into something maybe and to then turn around and be the one who is the hierophant sharing the traditional wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> Going back to that reference. Yeah. I think that was part of the success, at least in my eyes for the book, is that it did include this storytelling line that kind of took you through each chapter, but also it is also a textbook in my eyes in terms of, oh, I can just go back and reference any section because while it builds in the story, it is specifically like about you know, and embroidery or now I can go back and look at that little thing I wanted to do and put it into a project. I really liked the organization and everything. It was just very Thank flow you. for me to read. And, and it's a big one, like you said, but it just goes so fast. So <laughs> yeah. And I think you can, you can also, I mean, there's lots of ways you can approach it. You can jump in and say, Oh, I want to learn about making the spirit doll, the motanka. Mm -hmm. And so you just jump into that chapter and you learn about what a motanka is and, and how to make one. And you can just use it that way. Um, you can go through them step-by-step. Step. You can do the ones you want to do, not do the ones you don't want to do, um, uh, you know, do the ones that call to you, or you could just like read the story and then skip all the how-to or skim over the how-to. Sure. You know yeah. what I mean? It's like, it really can be approached. I think it's approachable in for a lot of different people and a lot of different ways. Maybe you just want to observe and learn about this culture and this magic, this particular kind of magic. I'm glad you were able to do that and saw that. That makes mm -hmm. me very gratified. I know that you've had a lot of magical experiences while writing this book. What is one of the most magical things <laughs> that has happened? In doing my research, I started working with my friend and colleague, Krista Lynn, who's a Ukrainian shaman, Ukrainian Canadian shaman. She's up in BC. She teaches shamanism and she provides shamanic services. And so I wanted to meet with Baba Yaga in a context of a shamanic session. And we did, and now I can go, now I can go there anytime. Mm. I just pop in and I go visit her anytime I want to, which is quite often. I just go hang out with her, ask her a question or you know, learn something from her, get some healing from her. The result of that was that I started taking shamanic um, training and I'm just finishing up my year long apprenticeship, shamanic apprenticeship. I don't know what I'm going to do with it. <laughs> just like learning it. But my, but Crystal Lynn, she said, you don't have to know what you're going to do with it. Cause you may, you'll, it will come into your practice whenever you are going to be facing something that you need to do, whether it's psychopomp work or you're doing some healing session for somebody that needs healing. So now you have the skill 
to be able to do that, you don't have to make a plan for it or anything like that. So, but that was one of the things like really meeting her in the, and working in, and working in her realm, which is going into the lower world. Uh, the lower world is in uh, shamanic traditions, like more earthy animal world, you know, earthly kind of magical earthly spirit world. And um, exploring that world has been so fulfilling to me and hanging out with and Baba Yaga who was a spirit who was like knocking on my door but I didn't really have that personal relationship now I really have that very personal relationship with her where I go see her all the time visit with her all the time I feel like that's a great example of um like path working uh we recently had um Kat Gina Cole on that was one of the things that she touched on it's like once you kind of make this connection with, you know, a deity or whatever you're kind of trying to work with, re-going to that path once you know is usually pretty easy. Yeah, but it really helped to have a guide. Like, you know, I went to see her because I was, um, wanted to learn more about the traditional Ukrainian shaman, shamanic work or Mofar or Mofarka work. So I did learn a little bit about it, like, but she knew a lot of the stuff that I already knew, but she was very helpful on some things of clarifying things, some things for me. But then I didn't, what I didn't know was that I could do this um, visiting with the spirits in these sort of journeys that we would go on. And it wasn't, the whole thing about it is amazing. Okay, I gotta go back and explain. It's not like a guided meditation where someone's telling you, okay, you're walking into the forest and you mm -hmm. see a little house on chicken legs and blah, blah, blah. you're not doing that. She's rattling and drum rattling mm -hmm. and there's drumming music playing for an hour and doing vision journey work on her own. And then she, at the end of the hour, she comes back and tells you, but what was happening for me is that I was also going on the vision journey work. And that got me very interested in deepening that practice and learning more about it. So then I started to really do these, this very intensive uh, apprenticeship where I'm doing lots and lots and lots and lots of journeys for other people, for myself, for healing the earth and so on. But that gave me the skill to be able to do those journeys. So that really is like the amazing gift of this book. Wasn't that your question? Like, what did I get out of it? Yes, absolutely. Totally. <laughs> That's a practice I'm also trying to do more of. So it's just so hard as a creative person, I'm sure you know, to find the peace in the brain to make it stop enough to get in. It, it doesn't be done. you ever sleep. So, you know. <laughs> I have so many things lined up. Like I have this thing that I'm really wanting to do and I go, ah, I can't do it because I've got to finish this project and that project and the other, but I'm getting caught up now. I've got more help here at the shop and so. I'm getting a little more done. You can visit parlorofwonders.com. That's parlor with a U of wonders.com. Every single Sunday, you have a super fun free Q&A. Yes. Madam Pamita hops on Zoom. You're there in the chat and typing in your Q&A and Madam Pamita answers your questions live. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What a so nice service. Have, yeah. So if you have questions about magic or you're curious about something it used to be back in the old days, people would say, I want to have a reading. I'm like, that's not the show. <laughs> it's not for a reading. But now I think they've all figured it out that it's for asking magical questions. So you can ask a question 
Um, like, you know, what's a good spell to build my business or what's a good, sh- what's a good spell to get followers for my podcast, knit a spell, right? And then I make some recommendations, herbs, candles, oils, things you could use, you know, and make some recommendations on things that would help. Yeah. So you can do all kinds of, you know, ask all kinds of questions. We record the podcast episode live in the first half. So usually 20, 30 minutes or so. Um, we're recording the podcast episode and then the last half I'm answering questions and it's a lot of fun. We get together. It's a great group of very friendly, very knowledgeable people and we help each other. So over in the chat, people might say, oh, I want to spell to bring more followers to my podcast or have more people find us. And other people would say, oh, why don't you try this? Or why don't you try that? And they're all very knowledgeable people that are in there. So you'll get not only my two cents about it, but you'll get other people that have some ideas and and suggestions as well. It's just a very welcoming, friendly, fun group of people. And some people have said, I'm very shy. I don't like being on camera. It's no camera on this. It's just come watch. And if you have a question, you can type it in the chat. If you just want to watch and be quiet and you know, sit against the wall and just observe. No one's going to force you to do anything. You can lurk. Yeah, you can lurk. You can totally lurk. And every class that I have, um, if you're a lurker and you don't want to be on camera, you come in with no camera and no mic. So the the crafting classes, um, actually not these, these, the ones like the Vishivanka is going to be just a screen, but there are some crafting classes that I have. I do a new moon spell and a full moon spell kit and workshop for new moon and full moon. And those they're smaller groups. So we do allow people to turn on mics and turn on camera, but you don't come in with mic and camera on. And if you want to just lurk and you don't want to be seen, it's totally fine. Nobody's going to put you on the spot or call you out or anything. So I just love your website. It is, you have an incredible resource, things that people can learn. They can register for your tarot Academy. That's where I really got my skills as a professional tarot reader, Um, but your magic how-to guides are free. A lot of how-to videos that are free. Your newsletter is Mm -hmm. awesome. Her oils are the oils that we use in this household because they don't give me a migraine. I mean, you're my friend, of course, but your work and your products are things that I 100% stand behind and I just adore you. So don't miss Madame Pamita's shop and her work is completely legit and I just adore you. We'll have links to all of that, your social media. I have two Instagrams. Parlor of Wonders is my Instagram that's got all the you know products and things that are happening at the shop. Some of that stuff goes on to Madame Pamita, but a lot of Madame Pamita is me posting pictures of things that I'm interested in, sharing things that I'm interested in. It's a fun thing. And I have lots and lots and lots of followers. It's more just me, right? It's real. It's like mm. what I'm interested in, what I think is cute. What I, here's this other business or this other, other person. About. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. what I care about. So, you know, it's all kinds of personal, more personal stuff that shows up over there. Anything else that you want to promote before we head out? One of the free things that Jim mentioned is the um, book, Seven Secrets to Supercharge Your Spellwork. It's a 33-page book that is um, graphic. It's beautiful, full-color ebook, and it's free if people sign up on my email list. So if you would like a copy of 33-page book called Seven Secrets to Supercharge Your Spell Work, which gives you tips and tricks on how to use different things in your spells, including a section on what do I do if my spell goes wonky? 
which is a big question that people have. So that book is there and it's free and I give it away when you sign up for the email list. So you can go to spellsquad.com to sign up. You'll get that book. You'll get the access to the live Q&A, free Q&A every Sunday. You'll get the link for that. Um, there's some other goodies that you get too. So um, I'll let those be a surprise. Nice surprise. Spellsquad.com, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, if you don't have an outlet at this point to find your crafting magical through Madame Pamita, I don't know where you're going to go, people. She's got <laughs> it all. Well, this has been so wonderful. We could keep you here for four more hours talking about all of these wonderful things. It just means we'll have to have you back again sooner yeah. than later. So, you're, Well, thank you. You're a real magical maker yourself making actual actually making candles actually making oils right there in your manufacturing shop there in california so thank you for taking time out of your busy busy day with us here on the knit a spell podcast it's been wonderful hanging out with my friend and yes. having you hang out with me and katie it's been a blast yes, so much nice fun to you. we yeah, love it. your books this baba yaga's book of witchcraft is phenomenal yes and out now so Get much it. for for writing this book Yes. Thank you so much, you guys. Thank you. It's been so much fun to hang out with you and chat, chit chat about this. I get so passionate about the things in here and to talk to people that are crafty people. I get to talk about the crafty part of it, which I don't get to always talk about. You know, people want to know the more about the spirits, about this and that. Then we'll definitely have to do this again yeah. soon because fiber nerding out is my favorite too. So I said my fave too. I love it. And I, there's so much magic and there's so much more about it in the book. I mean, it's like, we just got to touch on it. So if you're interested in fiber magic, you will get your money's worth from that book because you will learn a lot about weaving, spinning, uh, needle craft and all kinds of other crafts. So yeah. Which is why it's so perfect for this podcast. That's right. Thank you everyone for listening and we will see you next week. See you then. Hey, Nizbell fans. Guess what? It's finally time. Our Patreon has launched and it is ready for you to sign up for just $13 a month. You can get a slew of benefits while supporting your favorite podcast. To find out more, go to patreon.com forward slash light from lantern. Hey everyone, this is Madam Pamita and you may not know this, but you've just gotten an owl to come to witch school. Every first Sunday of the month, I have something called first Sunday's witchcraft workshops. Join me for the First Sunday Witchcraft Workshops each month for a new online workshop where I will be guiding you through an immersive magical topic, teaching you how to apply it to your daily practice. These workshops are live on Zoom and led by me and are fun, educational, and I would say life-changing. If you'd like to find out more and you'd like to sign up, you can go to witchcraftworkshops.com scroll down a bit. There's a whole bunch of other great Slavic magic workshops coming up. I got a spinning one coming up for all you crafty people. We can talk about magical spinning and all kinds of other crafty things, making a beautiful duduk, which is a special winter solstice um, place to invite your ancestors. Got Slavic living fire magic, Slavic wax pouring rituals. We got a lot of cool things coming up. So go check it out. Go to witchcraftworkshops.com. So Jim, I was hoping that you could tell the folks at home and our listeners about your amazing class, Palmistry Tarot Mashup. 
So the Palmache Tarot mashup is an exploration of some hidden in plain sight symbolism in the Rider Waite Smith tarot cards. The Rider Waite Smith tarot cards have people in almost all of the cards. And with my friend, Madame Pamita, we dive in and decipher the secret signals the hand gestures are sending us in the tarot deck. You will learn about how the hands and finger positions, what they mean and how to interpret them and get an insight into human nature and human unconscious. You can get lifetime access to this class for just $29 by visiting bit.ly forward slash PT mashup, the palmistry tarot mashup. It's super fun, lifetime access, self-paced. You took the class. I did. And I learned a lot and I can't recommend it highly enough. So definitely check it out. And you'll be glad you did because your tarot reading skills are going to be increased exponentially by these two wonderful hosts on this class. So don't miss out. Thanks for listening. listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider sharing it with a friend, leaving a review on iTunes and Spotify, or following Knit a Spell on Instagram. You can also subscribe to the Light from Lantern YouTube channel to enjoy full episodes of Knit a Spell and see our happy faces. You can also learn more about readings, classes, and events going on with your favorite maker of magic, James Devine, by visiting thedivinehand.com and subscribing to his newsletter. Then follow Jim's fun and interactive Instagram account at Divine Hand Jim. Keep up with Katie, the magical maker, by subscribing to her newsletter at lightfromlantern.com. You'll even receive a free knitting pattern as a thank you gift. Then follow Katie on Instagram at lightfromlantern for even more magical making tips. See you See next, you next week. week.